This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and I will be your host. This is episode 259, entitled, How Proverbs Chapter 9 Influenced New Testament Christology. Thank you so much for joining us this week at the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. We're in the midst of a series that is working through the passages within the Old Testament, within the Hebrew Bible, that Jews and Christians came to understand as defining the role of the Messiah. So this week we will conclude our exploration of the book of Proverbs, particularly by looking at the ninth chapter. We'll be looking at the various ways that Proverbs chapter 9 and its portrayal of God's personified wisdom influenced both the historical Jesus and the writers of the New Testament. So here are some of the questions I would like to explore in this week's episode. First, in what ways do we find wisdom and folly personified in Proverbs chapter 9? Second, how do these two personified figures and their actions help clarify their distinctive roles? And lastly, how does the figure of personified wisdom as one who is distinct from personified folly shape the way that the New Testament authors characterize Jesus as the Jewish Messiah? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at personified wisdom and personified folly in Proverbs chapter 9. So we'll read two paragraphs out of Proverbs chapter 9. One is going to illustrate personified wisdom, and the other one is going to illustrate personified folly. And they are written in a way that is meant to compare and contrast both of these figures. And that seems to be a deliberate portrayal of wisdom and folly. So let's begin. Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 1 says, Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out seven pillars. She has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her maidens. She calls from the tops of the heights of the city. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake your folly and live, and proceed in the way of understanding. Now that's Proverbs 9, verses 1 through 6. And if we skip a few verses, we get down to the portrayal of of personified folly. So in chapter 9, verse 13, it reads, The woman of folly is boisterous. She is naive and knows nothing. She sits at the doorway of her house, on a seat by the high places of the city, calling to those who pass by, who are making their paths straight. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks understanding, she says, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But 
he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. That's Proverbs 9, verses 13 through 18. So we've got these two passages. One of them is personifying wisdom, and the other one is personifying folly, and they both are inviting and summoning their listeners to come in to eat with them, to dine with them, to partake of their food and drink. But the results of those dining experiences could not be any further apart. For those who dine with Lady Wisdom, they are offered life. But those who dine with Lady Folly, they will join those who are dead and in Sheol, the realm of the grave. Let's look at some of these verses and unpack them a little bit so we can better understand how Jesus and the New Testament authors drew upon these passages in order to shape the Christian messianic understanding of the early church. So wisdom is building her house, hewn out her seven pillars. Seven, of course, is a number of completion. It would indicate that her house is complete, it's perfect, and thereby it would be desirable for people to come and to participate in whatever she is going to offer. She is portrayed here as a homeowner, as someone who manages the household, and she is also a cook. She prepares food and mixes her wine, and she has set her table. That's very interesting. She is setting up a feast, and the feast involves food and wine, but she is the one who has prepared this particular meal. It's not just that she is there and eating it with those who come to feast with her. She is actively involved in the cooking and the making of this meal. Now, Lady Wisdom, personified wisdom, is not alone. She has maidens. She has these female servants whom she sends out. And the maidens are assisting Lady Wisdom in the summoning of people to turn in and to dine with Lady Wisdom. Now she is in a public space. She calls out from the heights of the city. She's out there in the open and her summons is calling for people to turn into her house. And the invitation specifically indicates that they would come and to eat of her bread. Some translations will just simply say, come eat of my food, but the Hebrew noun lechem actually means bread. Come eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. It reiterates the fact that she is the one that has actually made this meal. She is the one that is providing the bread and providing the wine. Now those who come and participate in this sort of meal are promised life. Those who forsake their folly will actually live. They'll receive life and they will get to proceed forth onto this road that is described as the road of understanding. They will no longer live in folly. They will no longer lack understanding. They will no longer be described as the naive. They will be wise because they'll be walking on the way of understanding and they will be walking towards life. Now the portrayal of personified folly 
the folly that wisdom invites her listeners to forsake is very similar. It's remarkably similar. In fact, the invitation offered by personified folly is exactly the same invitation that Lady Wisdom offers, word for word. But she is not described as someone who is a builder of a house. She is naive and she knows nothing, this personified folly. And while she is also portrayed as being in public places, on the high places of the city, she issues forth her summons, but she does so to those who are making their path straight. She is calling out to those people who are trying to live righteously, who are trying to walk along the straight paths, and she's trying to summon them to come in to be with her. And she also offers bread and drink, but her meal is quite different. Instead of offering wine, she's offering stolen water. Her meal is subpar. Instead of offering bread that has been freshly cooked, this is bread eaten in secret. And instead of, of course, offering life and a path of understanding, she is offering death and a path to the grave, a path to Sheol. It's a very interesting passage, and the way that the Jewish sage here portrays personified folly helps to contrast the figure of personified wisdom. We can better understand wisdom by seeing her counterpart and by juxtaposing her description with the description of folly, of foolishness. Now, of course, it's clear that these are personifications. There's not a actual female figure named Wisdom who is a house bibbler who is cooking food for all of these people. There's nowhere you can go and find Lady Wisdom's house on a map. Same thing with personified folly. She is a personification of foolishness. But these women are out there attempting to draw upon the male readers. And the goal, the literary goal, is of course for the Jewish sages to encourage the male readers to choose the wisdom, to choose God's wise instructions and his commandments, and to avoid foolishness and folly while doing so. So having looked at the figure of personified wisdom and having contrasted the figure of Lady Wisdom with personified folly in Proverbs chapter 9, we can now move and look at how the New Testament authors drew upon these passages and see how these passages have impacted their portrayal of Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. Let's move to our second point. Point number two, the influence of Proverbs 9 onto the New Testament writers. So I came up with seven ways in which Proverbs chapter 9 has helped to shape the early Christian messianic understanding, their understanding of the role of the Messiah, the person of the Messiah, his characteristics, and of course his relationship with the God of Israel. This is not meant to be an exhaustive list, I just thought that seven would be enough to fill out our time. So the first way that Proverbs chapter 9 has shaped early Christian messianic understanding is that the image of wisdom sharing her bread and her wine 
in order that those who will feast with her, resulting in life, is an image that undoubtedly influenced the early Christian understanding of the Eucharist, of the Lord's Supper. In the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, the people come together and they share in the bread, they share in the wine, and this bread and wine is meant to be closely associated with the Messiah, with Jesus. But in Proverbs chapter 9, it is a strongly asserted point in the passage that the bread and the wine are closely associated with God's wisdom. In fact, God's wisdom not only provides the bread and the wine, she actually cooks the bread and mixes the wine herself. Arguably, even Jesus himself, the historical Jesus, saw his own actions in the upper room on the night before he was crucified, his own actions there in which he was sharing the bread and the cup with his disciples as the meal that announces his death as the inauguration of the new covenant, Jesus likely interpreted this as continuing what Lady Wisdom had started in Proverbs chapter 9. So it's hard to escape the fact that the portrayal of Wisdom inviting people to eat of her bread and her wine, the food and drink that are closely associated with her, has impacted Jesus and his offering of the disciples to eat of the bread and the wine in the way that early Christians chose to remember this fact in the sacrament of the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. I think there's much more work that biblical Unitarians can do with this particular connection. I think the connection is actually rather strong. The second connection along similar lines is that Jesus in the Gospel of John offers himself as the true bread, the bread from heaven, and Jesus also gives water, water that is offered in a way that results in life everlasting, in the life of the age to come. So Jesus, of course, offers his own self as the bread of life in John chapter 6, and he offers the water of everlasting life in a few passages, but particularly in John chapter 4. So, of course, offering bread and offering drink is something that Lady Wisdom does and is something quite clearly that Jesus does. That's our second point. Third point, the Gospel of John in particular portrays these maidens that Lady Wisdom sends out as the female disciples of Jesus. And the similarities between the stories of these female disciples of Jesus in the Gospel of John and the portrayal of wisdom sending out the maidens in Proverbs chapter 9 is actually pretty remarkable. So there are five particular women in the Gospel of John that function as ideal disciples, as these female servants that are associated with Jesus, the wisdom made flesh. I'll focus on three of them. I'm going to focus on Mary, the Samaritan woman, and Martha, the sister of Lazarus. And by Mary, there's three different Marys in the Gospel of John. All three of them happen to be, not coincidentally, 
these female figures that function as ideal disciples. But the Mary that I'm going to be talking about today is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And she has an interesting story in John chapter 2 at the wedding in Cana. She seems to understand the significance of Jesus. And when the wine has run out, Mary knows whom to ask for the wine. She goes directly to Jesus because Mary understands that Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom. What does wisdom do? Wisdom is the one that mixes the wine in Proverbs chapter 9. So Mary, understanding Jesus as the incarnation of wisdom, goes to Jesus and says, you make the wine. That's a very interesting connection, arguably drawn from Proverbs chapter 9. It's also interesting that Mary is able to demonstrate her act of faith prior to a miracle happening, while the disciples later in that passage are those described as believing after the miracle takes place. In other words, Mary characterizes herself as an ideal disciple that demonstrates belief even without having seen a sign or a miracle. And her example of that faith in going to Jesus and recognizing who he is actually results in many others coming to faith, just like the maidens who are sent out in Proverbs chapter 9 to invite people to come and to experience the miracles that wisdom offers. So there's a very interesting connections there with the portrayal of Mary in John chapter 2 that most people tend to read over and not think anything about, but arguably the author of the Gospel of John is portraying this woman in terms of the maiden that personified wisdom has sent out in Proverbs chapter 9. The next woman we'll look at is the Samaritan woman, the woman that Jesus met at the well, at Jacob's well. This is in John chapter 4. Now, the Samaritan woman, of course, is seeking water, and Jesus offers a drink that leads to life. This is exactly what we see in Proverbs chapter 9. We see wisdom, personified wisdom, offering this drink, the drink that wisdom has made, and those who come and partake of it will live. They will receive life. So, Samaritan woman seeks something to drink. Jesus offers something to drink that leads to life, but this was said of personified wisdom hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. And what's interesting is that after the Samaritan woman comes to acknowledge Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, she leaves and goes back to her town. And while she's at her town, she summons others to come out and to come see Jesus, which is exactly what we see in Proverbs 9. The maidens of wisdom, they go out and they summon for people to come in and to come and experience what wisdom has to offer, many of whom actually respond in belief. So again, a lot of the details of the Samaritan woman, which many people read over and they don't think much about, seem to be drawn as portraying the maidens of wisdom as they're illustrated in Proverbs chapter 9. The third woman we'll look at is Martha, Martha the sister of Lazarus. Now she is the focal point alongside Jesus in John chapter 11. 
And what's interesting about Martha is that she, like Mary, demonstrates her faith and her belief in Jesus prior to the miracle taking place. She acknowledges that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, which is acknowledged in the Gospel of John as the intended Christological understanding that the readers are supposed to have. Martha confesses this faith prior to witnessing the miracle of the resurrection of her brother, Lazarus. So she becomes a disciple of Jesus, but she does so after Jesus claims to be the resurrection and the life. And by Jesus claiming to be the resurrection and the life, he is offering life to those who follow him. Just like we see in the portrayal of wisdom in Proverbs 9, that those who forsake their folly will live, will have life. Wisdom offers life. Jesus, the embodiment of wisdom, claims to be that life. And in doing so, he offers the life of the age to come, the resurrection life, and of course he offers life that people can experience in the present. Life abundant. Martha, of course, is functioning as this female servant, as the maiden of wisdom, and she runs home after making this confession, tells others about Jesus, resulting in many of those persons coming to faith. Again, this is exactly what we see in Proverbs 9. We see that the maidens are sent out to invite people to come in and to experience what personified wisdom has to offer, resulting in a close association and the reception of the life that wisdom offers. Now, there's much more that could be said about the other women. That would be Mary of Bethany and Mary Magdalene, but I'm going to save that for another time and for another podcast. But it's safe to say that the portrayal of wisdom-possessing maidens that are sent out to issue the summons for anyone to come in and to partake of what personified wisdom has to offer, that portrayal has been deeply influential, not just in Jesus, but in Jesus' disciples, his female disciples, particularly within the Gospel of John. I don't think that those connections are a coincidence or a mistake. I think that they are a deliberate attempt by the author of the Gospel of John to portray Jesus in terms of wisdom in Proverbs chapter 9. Let's move along. Our fourth point is that Jesus calls his listeners to repent, and then he promises to give them the life of the age to come. And as we've seen, wisdom summons her listeners to forsake folly and promises to give them life. So the fact that Jesus offers life, and this is something that happens in all four Gospels, not just the Gospel of John, we can see that this is something that Jesus does, and of course it seems to draw upon the portrayal of wisdom in Proverbs chapter 9. In fact, we've seen that in basically every passage. We've seen that in Proverbs chapter 1, Proverbs chapter 3, Proverbs chapter 8, and Proverbs chapter 9. It's one of the most important and noteworthy characteristics of personified wisdom is the fact that wisdom promises life to those who listen to her and hold her fast. Number five, wisdom invites people to walk along the way of understanding that leads to this life. We saw this in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 6. Wisdom summons her listeners to walk on the way of understanding. 
Now, in the Gospel of John, particularly in chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And by claiming this, he's really focusing in a way that answers the question of his disciples who ask Jesus, where is this way? Show me the way. And Jesus says that I am the way. And this way is further defined as the truthful way and the way that leads to life. So while Proverbs chapter 9 associates personified wisdom with the concepts of the way, understanding, and life, the Johannine Jesus claims to be the way, the truth, and the life. And the fact that the way in Proverbs 9 is described as the way of understanding that can easily be understood as the truthful way that Jesus claims to be for himself. So I think those titles that Jesus claims for himself have been influenced by Jesus meditating on the portrayal of wisdom in Proverbs chapter 9. And this, of course, would mean that Jesus sees himself as the embodiment of personified wisdom. Along similar lines, point number six, Jesus invites his followers to listen and to come after him in ways that are depicted in terms of walking. Now, Lady Wisdom calls those who are walking and urges them to change directions, to come and enter into her house, and to walk upon the way of understanding. The portrayal of the listeners of wisdom as those who are walking along a path is a significant portrayal. Now, the opponent of Lady Wisdom, personified folly in Proverbs 9, also invites those who are walking and summons them to turn into her house, but of course, her path leads to Sheol. Now, the Jesus of the Gospels regularly speaks of discipleship in terms of two different ways. The way that leads to life and the wide path that leads to death and destruction. So in Matthew chapter 7, verse 14, Jesus says, The gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to, guess what? Life. The way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. And then Jesus says to beware of the false prophets and the following verse. So in Matthew 7, when Jesus is encouraging his listeners to choose the way that leads to life, he says so by also warning them of false prophets, just as Lady Wisdom is inviting people to take the path of understanding that leads to life, and the portrayal of Lady Wisdom is juxtaposed with this portrayal of the false path, a false prophet, namely personified folly. In the Gospel of John, we have more of this. In John 8, verse 12, Jesus says, He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 8, verse 12. So those who come after Jesus and follow him are not walking in darkness. They have the light of life. This, of course, sets it up as one of two different ways you can go. You can either walk on the path of darkness, or you can walk on the path of light. And guess what? 
the path of light leads to life, just like we see in Proverbs chapter 9. Later in the Gospel of John in 12.35, Jesus says, Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he goes. And this is the portrayal that we see of personified folly. Those who come in after personified folly are not aware that this meal and this path associated with folly leads to death and leads to Sheol. Jesus says those who walk on the path of darkness do not know where they are going. Instead, they should take the other path. They should walk while they have the light. Again, all of these make sense when we see them in light of the original passage in Proverbs chapter 9. And lastly, point number seven, if Jesus embodies wisdom, which is a personification, if Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom, the incarnation of wisdom, then this defines the nature of Jesus' preexistence. The Gospel of John unambiguously indicates Jesus has a preexistence. But if it's preexistence in terms of wisdom, then this is preexistence that needs to be understood in light of that personification. And a personification is not a conscious living female alongside the God of Israel up in heaven. Yes, the Gospel of John does say that Jesus preexisted, but this preexistence, if Jesus is the personification of wisdom, the embodiment of this wisdom, then he preexists as this personification. That's not a literal preexistence, not a conscious, living, breathing, existing preexistence. That's a very important point, is to recognize that if the Gospel of John and the other writers of the New Testament see Jesus as the embodiment of God's wisdom, then this is an argument against the literal preexistence of Jesus. Because wisdom in the book of Proverbs, especially in Proverbs chapter 9, is a personification, not an actual female figure. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we look at a book that is often not even considered to have made an impact on early Christian messianic understandings. And that's going to be the book of the Song of Solomon. Join us next week as we check out the Song of Solomon to see if there are any passages that have helped shape the messianic expectations of early Christians. Please look forward to our next episode. Now, if you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. You can support us for absolutely free by subscribing on YouTube and iTunes, by giving us an honest review online, and by sharing your favorite episode with your friends. If you'd like to offer a tip or donation, you can check out the episode's description for a PayPal link. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.